Good morning. If you would please take your Bible and look to the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 3. And I just wanted to mention to you how grateful, and I'm sure you are as well, for those that have been leading in our time of worship and song. And uh, I've appreciated, especially working with Hunter, um, you may not realize this, Hunter every week um, wants to find out what passage that we will be looking at. And uh, I can tell by the music that he is choosing that he has meticulously looked at the scriptures and prayed about it and really has looked to have our music be in correlation with the message of the Word of God that we're looking at. And so I just really appreciate that. And that's the kind of work that maybe many people don't know and don't see, but uh, you should be aware of that. And I'm so appreciative of him uh, for his doing that. You know, a very familiar passage is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I don't think it was the first passage I ever memorized as a child, but one of the first passages that I memorized. And we know its message. The message is that every believer comes to Christ through faith. It's by grace through faith and not of works. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's a very familiar passage to us, and it's, it's a great passage, but I've come to uh, look at this as kind of a shame, and you'll have to hear me why it's a shame. But it's a shame because we don't usually teach our children the next verse, and we stop at verse 9 when we need to at least include verse 10. Because we are saved by grace through faith, and it is not of ourselves, it's not of works, lest any one of us boast of our works and, and think that's what has saved us, and that is true. But verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us to walk in them. And so... We have been saved by grace through faith, but we have been saved to do the work that God has called us to do. And evidence of grace in our lives is the grace that is shown in our serving the Lord and doing his work. And the reason I find it a shame, and I've told you my background, um, Southern Baptist life has has just been my life. I, I was telling uh, a man at school recently that it's not just uh, the denomination that I'm affiliated with, but for me, it's family. Um, it's, it's a, I'm a part of the culture of it and, and just love it for what it is and pray for what it, it needs to be and what we need to be. And so when I usually talk about Christians in a poor light, I don't talk about other denominations or other peoples too much, but I am willing to talk about family because I'm talking about myself, and I know us and love us. And one of the things that we often do is we place so much emphasis on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, and it is completely true and it should not be de-emphasized, but we place so much emphasis on that that we miss that God has called us by grace through faith to do the work that he has called us to do. And that it's almost as if among us, as, as long as we're in, as long as we can say, I'm saved. And it used to be when I was a kid, they'd say, when you walk the aisle and sign the card and, and was baptized, as long as you've done all those things and prayed the prayer that you were told to pray, then everything's good. And the truth is not everything is good if there is no evidence of salvation through service in Christ Jesus. Also, Paul wrote, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. 
Behold, all things are made new. So there is a difference that takes place. How can the Holy Spirit live in us, dwell in us, and not change us? It's impossible for God to truly inhabit us and not change our lives to be made more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to realize that we glorify Christ by doing the work that God the Father has given us in Christ to do. It's interesting, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers is Christopher Wright. And Christopher Wright made this statement. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. That is why we exist. We exist for the mission of God, for the glory of God. And again, I appreciate it when we say that our aim and goal is to glorify Christ, but that word glorify becomes somewhat of a cloudy word for us. But the Bible is not ambiguous when it comes to what it means for the people of God to glorify God because the people of God who glorify God are the people of God who do the work that God has called them to do. And we must understand this to be the case. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said that my food is what? To do the work that the Father has sent me to do. And so if we are to be like Christ, it is to be a people who are, have given ourselves to Christ that we belong to him and that we are in his service to do what he has called us to do in regard to the mission he has given us to carry out the great commission, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to be about the work of the church. And so as we think about this passage this morning in Nehemiah, we need to keep these things in mind. Um, you, you notice here the title of the message is Together We Build. I think about this. Uh, I told you I'm, I, I've grown up in Southern Baptist life. The only thing I don't have that uh, all my family members have is their accent. Um, because my uh, father, when I was one years old, went to Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm the oddball that way. But I grew up in a Southern home on Southern cooking in Northeast Ohio. And so I also like ethnic foods a great deal, and so I eat Yankee food as well. And so you looking at me, you can tell I actually like lots of kinds of food, and you can, I don't hide that very well. But I remember as a kid, one of the programs that the Southern Baptist Convention used to have for churches that were looking to get into some kind of building project was called Together We Build. And the idea of it was taken really, I believe, from Nehemiah, that the people of God come together, work together to bring the resources that were needed to accomplish the work that God had called them to do, doing this together. It is no coincidence among Southern Baptists that our missions program is called the cooperative program, working together to do the work of ministry not just locally, not just regionally, but around the world, working together, cooperating together to do this work. And um, by the way, my commercial for the SBC is over with. I'll just mention one more thing. I do teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, okay? So you're not surprised by any of these things, I'm sure. But as we look in Nehemiah chapter 3, we see the people of God coming together to do the work that God had called them to do. Now, I will tell you that this passage, if you look at commentaries on the book of Nehemiah and sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, um, I would say the majority of commentaries don't even mention Nehemiah chapter 3. They skip completely right over this. And sermons and sermon series on Nehemiah 3, we'll skip it as well. 
And after you've heard me preach this today, you might think they were on to something that maybe you should have skipped it as well. But I look at this passage and I see some wonderful things that we need to learn that God has given us here. And I am a firm believer in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says all scripture is inspired, but it goes on and says, and profitable. So whenever I read any of the word of God, my question is, Lord, what are you teaching? What are you revealing about yourself? What is it in your word that you have given here in this passage to speak to your people? And so I believe that this is profitable for us to look at, and we should not neglect it, even though it is a very tedious passage, because what we see here is basically this. This, this passage um, really just gives a counterclockwise um, description of the work that was done on the wall of Jerusalem. So it starts at uh, one place, and it just goes around. I hope I'm doing this backwards, so this is counterclockwise to you. Um, but uh, that's what it does. So it says it starts at this gate, and then they got people working at this gate, and then people at this gate, and then people at this gate, and it just goes around. And it shows us all the people. There's the sheep gate, there's the fish gate, there's the old gate, the valley gate, the refuse gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the inspection gate. And so this is part of the reason many will skip this, because it just talks about work that was done and who did the work. What I'd like to do this morning, though, is just to go quickly and make some comments about each of these areas where they were doing work and the people that were doing that work. But then I would like to um, use the majority of our time to speak to some observations in general about this entire passage in Nehemiah chapter 3. And there, are, again, are some very important things that we should take from it, and uh, it should not be skipped, in my opinion. So let's begin reading. We're just, I'd like to just read the first two verses here to begin. And again, Nehemiah 3, verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose, from his brother, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated created it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. So it mentions Eliashib, and he was the high priest. And what we see here is that he was the grandson of Joshua, the high priest, who was among the first people who returned to Judah out of captivity. And the sheep gate is significant because it's the sheep gate where the, the, the sheep, the lambs, the goats, all those that were brought in for sacrifice, that's where they came in. And so it, it should be no surprise that the high priest who oversaw all of the activities at the temple and who oversaw all of Israel's worship and sacrifices, that he would be involved in the work at the sheep gate and that he would be leading others, the priests, his brothers with him to do this work as they are involved with this. Because this, starting here, Nehemiah is teaching a very important thing, that this project, the work that they were doing, was not just a building project like some other building project, but they, they were doing the work of God, that God had called them to do this, and that this was more than just building a wall, but it was about removing the reproach from Jerusalem, removing the reproach from the people of God, and glorifying God before the nations that he is a God who is over all of the nations, and he is a God who is over his people and lives among them, dwells among them, and blesses them in their work as they serve him. And so this is very important as it starts with that. And then we go on to the fish gate and look at verse 3. 
We see at the fish gate. All right, let's look on to verse 5. It says, moreover, next to him, and it's talking about um, Hassanah um, in verse 3 and the others that were there, and Zadok and his people. But in verse 5, I think it's worth noting, moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. So when we look at the, the fish gate, and basically this is just where fish and other, other things were brought in for, to do business and to feed people and sell, sell the food that they needed. And so it was called the fish gate. But it is interesting that not everyone joined in the work. These nobles of Tekoa said, we're not, we're not doing this. We're not going to get involved with this. And so we're going to look at all these slew of people in the rest of this chapter who were involved in the work, but not everybody was involved in this work. And I think it's interesting to note that in God's eternal word, we have a list of several people here who were obedient to God and were ready to do the work that God had called his people to do. But there were those who were not. And just as those who were eternally recorded and are eternally recorded in God's word as being obedient and eager and ready to do the work that God called them to do, there were those among the people of God who are forever eternally in God's record who refused to do the work that God called them to do. And we're not sure why they refused this. It's possible Tekoa, we know this, Tekoa was very near to the enemies that had been mentioned earlier in Nehemiah that were going against Nehemiah and his work. And we're going to see more of that getting into chapter 4 and following. And so it's possible he was afraid. When you're very near the enemy, it's very easy to listen to the enemy. And I'm guessing that that might have been the issue. Or it might have been, they're nobles, and they're like, this is below us. We don't do this work. Well, it wasn't below them, because let me tell you, if the high priest over all of the temple and over all of the things of God was involved in the work, then everyone else should have been as well. Because there was no higher position among the people of God than the high priest at that time. And yet, these nobles said, we're not going to do it. It really doesn't matter the reason why they didn't do it, though, because it really doesn't matter what our excuses are for not being obedient to God's work. What matters to God is, are we obedient or are we disobedient? And so I think there's a good reason it doesn't mention the reason, because it really doesn't matter the reason. There's no good reason to be disobedient to the work that God has called us to do. And so we see that there were those of Tekoa, these nobles, who did not do this. Now, it's interesting here, the word that's used. It says that these nobles did not support the work. Literally, this word support means did not bend the neck. And it's interesting that Hebrew would use this expression, did not bend the neck, because that's very closely associated with the expression of God's people having a stiff neck. And whenever God's word speaks of people who have a stiff neck or here who do not bend the neck, what it's saying here is that they stubbornly have said, we're not going to do the work. We're not going to get involved in the work that God has called his people to do. And they were unwilling to submit themselves to the authority of God in their lives to do the work that God has called them to do. We move on to the old gate, as it's called, in verses 6 through 12. And it's noteworthy here to see that there are people mentioned here who were goldsmiths and perfumers and people who did business in Jerusalem, and they had a vested interest in the security of the city. And the wall, of course, was one of the reasons was to provide security for the people of God. Nevertheless, these are goldsmiths and they're perfumers and other craftsmen 
and they walk away from the work that they normally do to put a hammer in their hand or whatever other tools they needed to go to the wall and to go to those gates and do work that they were not used to doing. And this ought to tell us something as well about the Lord's work, that we are called to be involved in the work, and sometimes that work is out of our comfort zone. But have you ever noticed that the life of faith is a call to go out of our comfort zone? God did not save us to make us comfortable. God saved us for his glory to be useful for him to do the work he's called us to do. And faith is something that needs to be stretched. I remember when I came to back to Louisville um, to work on my uh, PhD, and uh, I, had, I was in a church that was doing very well. I, I, was, uh, I had been the church planter. I was the founding pastor there, had been there eight and a half years. And um, it was just a wonderful place, loved by those people. I love those people, dear friends um, of ours. And um, not only that, as a church planter, I was doing some teaching at uh, then was the um, largest high school Christian school in America. And God was blessing that. And, and they even offered me to be an administrator. And I took that position and I was the youngest administrator they had ever had. And when I told them I'm leaving to go back to school, and that I believe God was calling me to do that, they offered me a promotion to not be just the assistant principal, but to be the principal of a high school. And um, God was working in my life. It was all very wonderful. And I remember talking to a friend of mine as I was leaving there and getting ready to come back to Louisville. And uh, I had no prospects of what... I was going to be doing when I came. I just knew that God was calling me to come back. And I remember talking to my friend and saying, I'm, I'm just really nervous about this, anxious, because honestly, everything is wonderful right now in my life. God is just blessing in the church. He's blessing in the ministry at the school. And uh, it's just going really well. And I don't even know what I'm thinking, except that I believe God wants me to, to go back. And I'm not sure about that. I'll never forget my friend. He said, you know, faith is often like a rubber band. Now, he knew who he was talking to. So he needed to talk uh, at a lower level so I could relate to a rubber band. I knew what that was. So I don't um, learn um, by things that are overly deep. So he, he was kind to me in that. But he said... Face like a rubber band. It's only useful when it's stretched. And that, that stuck with me. And the Lord stretches us. He stretches us out of our comfort zone. And these people, I have a feeling most of them who were perfumers and goldsmiths and especially um, other crafts, they had no idea about doing construction per se because they were skilled workers in some other areas. And yet they laid those things down to do the work that God has called his people to do. And so they were willing to do that. Um, another thing we see in this section is that Shalom, the son of one of the governors, brought his daughters to do the work alongside him. And in a patriarchal society, it's significant that they're mentioned here, that he didn't have any sons, it appears, but that did not keep him from doing the work, and it did not keep him from bringing his family of daughters to join him in doing the work. And so not only was it men who were doing the work that God had called his people to do, but it was women who were involved in this work as well. It was all of the people of God doing this work and it was unusual, but it was what the people of God did to the glory of God. Another thing we see, we get to verse 13, we see the valley gate. It says here, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. And really the, the main thing about this gate is that it was in the center of the western wall 
and it was the most important gate on that wall. But not much else is really said about it in, in the scriptures. And then we get to verse 14, and we see the refuse gate. And it says, Melchijah, the son of Rahab, and the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, and re, um, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And the refuse gate, or often called the dung gate, was where they took the garbage out of the city and dumped it. It was just the garbage dump there, and this was the way to it. And it's probably the place where priests would take the remains of any animals um, that were unacceptable for sacrifices. Um, if they found some kind of problem with it, they would take them outside the camp and uh, they would burn their carcasses as well there. But we see here that people gave themselves to the work at the refuse gate. Can you imagine this? Um, when the wall's done, say, where did you work? Well, we worked at the sheep gate. That was, I mean, that's where the animals come in for sacrifice. And oh, wow, that's, that's an important place. And then someone else says, well, we worked at the valley gate. That's the main gate out of the western side of the city. Everybody uses that gate. They're, oh, yeah, that's an important gate. And then they come up to, it would probably be me, and they say, where did you work? Well, I worked at the dung gate. And they're like, well, um, that's fitting. Um, but, uh, you know, but it's important. And there is nothing in God's work that is not important. We need to understand that. I will tell you this. I've had some years, as I said, in the church. Over the years, I have come more and more to especially appreciate the people in the church that do the things that most people don't want to do. And I think about this when my wife is just so gifted with children. And she'll have an infant, and she's been working in ministry with children as long as I've known her, since, since she was a teenage girl. And she'll have a, an infant, and she'll say, oh, he wants this or she wants that. And I say, you don't know that. And she's like the baby whisperer, you know? I mean, like she knows what they want, and I'm like, I have no clue. And so um, I remember one time she was working in the nursery, and she said, you ought to come in and join us. And I really didn't want to. And uh, I'm not, this is probably no surprise, I'm not the best with children, um, they, they become uh, pretty bored with me pretty quickly, and I understand. A lot of adults do as well, by the way. Um, but uh, anyhow, I went in there, and they were like two- and three-year-olds. By the way, two-year-olds, two I have a grandson that's two, year, two years old. They're thugs. That's what they are. If 20-year-olds did what two-year-olds do, they'd all be in prison, <laughs> or should be. And so I don't want to hang out with these people headed to the pen. It's not my crowd. And so, but she wanted me to come in there. So I go in there and I just didn't want to be in there. But, you know, I'm a little smarter than I put off sometimes. And this is what I did. We got in there. They had been upset. Their parents had left them. They finally got them calmed down. And I'm like thinking to myself, I just don't want to be in here. So this is what I did. I said to them, I said, where is your mama? Where did she go? And all of a sudden, they just started crying and welling. And Anne gave me what we call the, the brow. She raises her brows, and that's all she needs to say. And I'm like, I'll see. I'm sorry. I didn't mean, well, I didn't say that necessarily because I did, but I was out. But let me tell you, there is no job ministering to the people of God and ministering for the glory of God that is less important than the others. And you may say, well, preaching the word of God is important. Obedience to God and whatever he has called us to do is important. It's all important. If one group did not do their job on the wall, there would have been, would have been trouble with that one area. Everything matters. And the people who work in the nursery and keep the children and love them and patiently do what they need to do, they make it possible for us to sing and to 
to get into God's word and to worship together, and they make it possible for those children to be ministered in a way that they need to be at this phase of their lives. And it's important for all of us that we recognize the importance of everyone else and the work that they are doing. And so the the refuse gate. And then there was the fountain gate. And again, the fountain gate, we see people from various works of life. This is in verses 15 through 25. But all of them working together at the task at hand. And it it talks about uh, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, did so zealously. And that's the kind of work that we need to do for the Lord. We need to be zealous in it. That whatever our hand finds to do for the Lord, do it with all our might and strength for his glory. And that's what he did at the fountain gate. And then there was the water gate. And we see in verse 26, verses 26 and 27, it says the temple servants living in Ophel, this is a hill that was there in Jerusalem, made repairs as far as the front of the water gate to the east of the projecting tower. And we see here after them the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. This is interesting to note. The Tekoite nobles did no work, but the rest of the people from Tekoa who did the work, they just didn't work on one area, but they did double the work and they made up for the work that the others were not doing. And so we see their commitment in that. And then we see in verses 28 through 30, work near the horse gate. And the horse gate was where, you can imagine, where horses came in. And horses normally did not come into the city except to go to the palace. And they would have had horses uh, with the king's uh, stables there. And so that's where they would have gone um, near the palace. And then finally, there was the inspection gate. And we see this in verses 31 and 32. We're not sure what they were inspecting. The te- this, this gate is not mentioned um, much in the scriptures, but uh, it may have been an inspection of troops guarding the city. It may have been an, ex- an inspection of the priests to make sure that they were ready to do their daily service. We're not sure of that, but we see that the work on this gate was done and the repairs were made there as well. Now, I'd like to, with that being said, just make some observations for the next uh, minutes we have together about this passage altogether. The first observation is this. The people responded quickly to the work that was done. And I'm going to give you several words here. The word here is quickly. They responded quickly. They did this work and finished the work of the wall in 52 days, 52 days, God called Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to lead the people. He inspected the wall. Then he brought the people together and he said, this is not good. We need to repair this so that we would no longer be a reproach. And the people listened, agreed, and got to work. And they did it quickly. You know, Jesus said this in John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent uh, sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming when no one can work. Well, I'm sure Jesus had several things in mind there, but I will tell you one thing that comes to mind that we see taught in the New Testament, which is very sure, and that it is appointed once to man to, um, to die, and then judgment. If the Lord doesn't come before it happens, we're all going to die. This is just my uplifting message to you today. But it should be uplifting for us because our time is short. I'll tell you a difference in my, my life. I, it, it, we go through phases in our lives, don't we? And it's fun for me to, to watch my sons now as, as young men. And uh, one of my sons uh, just got married. The other one has been married for a number of years now, has two children, and seeing the things that they're going through. But I look back and I remember things in our own lives, Ann and, and myself, as, as we were going through that phase of life. 
But I've been in a different phase of life. I've been in the phase of life where in the last 10 to 15 years, several people that I loved very much have died. And when I was my son's age, you know death is, is real. And I, I remember the first death that really had an impact on me was when I was six year, years old and my grandfather died. And I remember that my aunts came up to my dad and said, we're taking all the children to one of their homes and said, we'd like to take, um, I go by TJ, but they called me Terry. And they said, we want to take Terry and um, go. And my dad said, no, um, he's staying with us. And I remember as they left, dad picked me up and took me to the casket where the body of my granddaddy laid. And this is one of the first lessons that has really stuck with me that my dad taught me. I looked at my granddaddy and dad said this. He said, Terry, the longer you live, the more people you love you, you, love, you will see die. And as a six-year-old, that stuck with me. And he wanted me to be there to recognize the reality of death. Not to, for some morbid thing, but just to understand. And he, would, he said this as well. Dying is as much a part of life as anything else. It is a part of what it means to live. It is to end with death. And in the last 10 to 15 years, what I have seen with, with people dying, and uh, my, my wife and my sister-in-law um, both don't like to hear this because my brother and I talk about this, but in our family, um, Bet's men, anyhow, um, the oldest one I know lived to 75. And um, so my brother and I will talk about like, you know, I've got 15 years left. I've got 10 years left. And we don't mean it in a morbid way, though. Because what I'm doing now is thinking, if the Lord does give me that amount of time, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to serve him? Because the opportunities I have now, I won't always have. That even comes in my thinking when Dr. Payne sent me an email and said, would you be willing to come to Fisherville and to serve as an interim um, while they're looking for a pastor? I wasn't looking for an interim position. I had never even spoke to Brian about anything like that at all. It was really out of the blue. But I had been praying for some time saying, God, if you would give me more opportunities. I, I preach a lot in the church where, where we're members at 9th and O, and I preach elsewhere quite a bit. I missed a couple of weeks uh, about a month ago when I came because I, I had already been asked to preach at another church and, and kept that commitment. But I'd been praying, God, I, wanna, I, I want more opportunity. Please, if it would be in your will, I would like that. And I'll tell you a part of my thinking is because I know if I live long enough, that those opportunities won't be here for me if it goes the way I've seen with my loved ones. And that's not morbid to me. That actually energizes me for right now to do what I can do right now because I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I know what I can do now. And so I want to do all I can now because I have a feeling that that will be limited someday if I live long enough. That's not morbid thinking. That's actually, if you look at the wisdom literature, what the Bible teaches to be wise thinking. Now, I don't always think wisely, but the scriptures help me to remember how I should think. And it teaches us to think in these ways. And so we see they responded quickly to do the work that God gave them when they could do that work. How about you? What about the opportunities you have now to do the work that God has before you now? Are you moving quickly to that? Are you dragging your feet 
on the, the work that God has called you to do? Because every one of us, if we are believers, have been called to do the work of ministry. Maybe not full-time vocational ministry, but ministry nonetheless. And so they responded quickly. They responded voluntarily. They volunteered to do this. Now, you may be looking at me and say, well, it's easy for you to say, because I'm sure the church is paying you and you get paid at the seminary, and sure, and, and that, that is correct. But I will tell you this as well. You have no idea how many years and years I spent doing the work that was volunteer, uh, volunteer work, and I will say I didn't always have the right attitude toward it. I remember as a preacher's kid, I was sick and tired of going to church. I remember telling my dad, I, I would say, this was a statement, I said, I'm quoting myself, church, 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 all we do is go to church. And I hate weddings to this day, because in June, he'd do like three weddings on one day and Saturday, on a Saturday, and when I got old enough, they'd throw a tuxedo on me and give me a pillow with a plastic ring on it and make me march in front of everybody. And then they put me with some flower girl who was some rookie who knew nothing about what was going on. So I had to, you know, carry her weight as long and mine as well in doing what we had to do. So I've had my fill of weddings. I, I'm sorry. That's probably one of the reasons I'm not a pastor full time. Because I'm like, I love funerals. They're wonderful. There's something lasting about a funeral. But I'm not sure always about weddings. But anyhow, voluntarily to do the work willingly. And by the way, not everything I do, and I'm not trying to brag, but I'm just letting you know, I'm not telling you something that you should do. I'm telling you something that we all should do. And I'm included in this, to volunteer, to do the work that God has given us when the opportunity is given for us to do that. All of us. And they were zealous in doing that, because they wanted to remove the reproach from the people of God and glorify him. Um, one other thing I would make and comment with this, we should not do the Lord's work in a shabby way. Whatever we do for the Lord should be done for the best. I think I mentioned this to you last week or uh, sometime before, I'm okay with a little mediocrity in my own life. I don't always have to have the best for, for me. But I'm not God. And while God doesn't always have to have the best, he deserves the best. And we should give him our best. And have you ever thought about this? It's not, that, it's not the excellence in and of itself that gets God's attention. Think about when I was a kid and kindergarten, and this was at church, by the way, um, but I was in kindergarten, and we made these little pots for our moms at Mother's Day, and I was so proud of that. I'd never done anything like that and put that together. You, see, you can see it. It's purple. It was glazed. It was a little rumpled when it was supposed to be perfectly round, but I remember bringing it to my mom, and I said, this is for you for Mother's Day. And she looked at it, and she saw all the creases in it and the dimples in it and how it wasn't shaped perfectly. And she said, that's the worst pot I've ever seen in my life. Is that what she said? It is not what she said. What she said, this is beautiful. And I'm going to put this in a place where everybody can see it, and I can see it every day, to be reminded of what you did for me. And I was so proud and so pleased. And I look back and realize what she did. It wasn't the pot in and of itself or the bowl, whatever it was. It was that I did it in love for her. And that blessed her heart. How much more our Heavenly Father. It's not that he's impressed by what we actually do. What impresses him is the reason we do it and what we want to do for him in our hearts. And he will bless that. So also, they responded sacrificially. 
Do you realize they left their jobs? They left their homes. And this is going to become an issue that, that Nehemiah is going to have to deal with. Because they leave their homes to do this building work while their crops are not being taken care of. While their families are not being taken care of back wherever they live. And yet they made this sacrifice for the work of the Lord and for his glory. And God calls us to this kind of work. I've seen so many students over the years, when they get ready to graduate, I say, what are you going to do? And they say, well, I'm looking for a church. I remember one in particular. I shouldn't say students. I haven't had many, but one stuck out. Um, He said, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm looking for a church to pastor. But he said, not just any church. He said, I'm looking for a church. And this is the first time I'd ever heard this actual expression, which is a real turnoff to me, actually. And so if you use it, fine, just don't use it with, around me, okay? But he said, I'm looking for a, a particular package. They've got to have a really good package. And I really didn't know what he was talking about. For, and then it dawned on me, he's talking about money. And so, so this is all about the money. He said, they've got to have the right package. But that wasn't enough. He said, also, this stuck out to me. They're going to take notes of all my sermons. And they're going to be, everyone's going to be taking notes and and it's, going to be this, and it's going to be an evangelistic church. It's going to be a discipling church. It's going to be a generous church. And it's going to have all these things. And as I was listening to this, I had a couple of thoughts. But one of them was, where is this church? I want to pastor this church. That was the first thing I was thinking. But no, the, the real thing I was thinking is how atrocious that this is what he, his thinking was. That it was all about him and what he could get No, whatever happened to the understanding of sacrificial giving and service for the Lord? Whatever happened to the idea that I'll go, and I I apologize for quoting my father so much, but he was a mentor in my life and a godly man. I lived with him. So he was the real thing. I saw it. And I, I remember him telling me as a young man, he said, you need to be willing to go wherever God calls you to go And you need to be willing to dig ditches if you need to, to take care of your family's needs, to go wherever God's called you to go to serve him. Now, I praise the Lord and am grateful that I've never had to dig ditches because I wouldn't make a living with that. But I understood what he was saying. We go where God calls us to go and trust him in that and be diligent to take care of our families, but... If we're faithful, God will not be outdone by our faithfulness. He is even more faithful. And it is not about what's in it for me, but God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. And by the way, how are you wanting me to go about this? But it's about sacrificial giving and being willing to do whatever God's called you to do to see that happen. Some of the people responded with anonymity. There are many people mentioned here that their names are not mentioned. And so they did the work not to gain fame for themselves. They did the work not so that people would notice what they did. They did the work because they love the Lord. They love the people of God. And they were obedient to God's call upon their lives. Regardless of what they, they got out of it, regardless of what kind of reputation might come from it. They were willing to do the work. I'm so happy and glad. Over the years, I have known so many people in the church that people, most believers will never know by name, but have been faithful to the Lord. And I pray to God that I could have the same kind of faithfulness and impact on the kingdom that I've seen them have. Because I'll tell you who does know them, not just me knowing some of them, but God knows every one of them. And there, are, there is a calling that God gives us to serve, and this calling is not about us. It is about him and his glory. Another thing, we see that they responded as a majority. Yes, there, were the, there was that minority of Tekoa that did not joining the work, but most of them did. And another teacher I love to listen to, Alistair Begg, 
says that the work in the church is not like a soccer game. I think he used the word football since he's from Scotland, but a soccer game. It's not where you have 60,000 people in a stadium and you have 22 people on the field and all these 6,000 people are looking at the 22 and cheering them on saying, go do it, go do it, get the work done. No, no, no. Many of us though in the church actually follow that principle. We have a handful of people who are doing the work and we look at them and say, oh man, I'm glad you're doing that. Go after it, go get them. I'm glad you're doing it. No, 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 no. It is a call for all of us to be on the field and those stands to be empty, to do the work that God has called us to do as a majority. And he, he went on to say, I'll quote him, if we are to take, ever to take seriously the mandate given us by Christ himself to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, then it demands mobilization of the totality of the people of God. No pew setters, no pew fillers, no observers, total mobilization of the troops. That's exactly what the people of God did in Nehemiah's day, and that's why we're talking about them today. Another thing we see, and I just mentioned it, among the majority was a minority, though, who did not do the work, and they are forever remembered for the work that they did not do. What are you going to be remembered for? Eternally. It doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive, and God may have forgiven these people. I don't know what, nothing more said about these people. They may have repented and made things right with God. I don't know. What I do know is they're on a list of names and people groups, and on that list of all the people that did the work, they're mentioned that they refused to do the work. And so, how are we going to be remembered? Are we going to be remembered in the, the people of God that do the work or those who have refused it? Another word is diversity. We have men and women. We have various occupations. We have a spectrum of socioeconomic backgrounds. We have single people. They're married people. We have governors, nobility. We have craftsmen. We have farmers. We have shepherds. All of them coming together to do the work that God had called his people to do. Another word is solidarity. They worked together. They were solid in their purpose. They all understood that even though I'm at the fish gate, these people over here are at the sheep gate, and all of us together are doing what? We are rebuilding the wall. I don't think that if you ask the person at the fish gate, you said, what are you doing? You say, I'm rebuilding the, sheep, uh, the, the fish gate. Um, or these people, I'm rebuilding the, the sheep gate. No, no, no. I think the answer was, we're rebuilding the wall. And they were doing their part in rebuilding the wall. You've heard me say this, and I hope you get it and get tired of hearing me say this. But not everyone is called to do everything among the people of God, but every one of us is called to do something. Every one of us. And so they understood that. And they got to the work. And another word is responsibility. The people's re response was marked by responsibility. There were 40 to 41 groups, if you count through the passage, that worked. And they had a particular responsibility that they were given. And while they understood the solidarity of everyone working together, they also understood the responsibility they had to do the work that they had been called to do. I'll tell you a grievous thing among us as the people of God is when we are not responsible for the things we've been called to do and the things that we have said that we would do. What would it be? I try to instill this in my students. They'll, they'll come up a day or two before and say, you know, this assignment which was given to them like weeks before the class ever started. And they'll come up and say, I just can't get it done. I'm just not ready. And the assignment itself, not, not terribly a big deal. But I'm training pastors and missionaries. And for me and my thinking is, what are you going to do Sunday morning? 
Wouldn't it be great this morning if about 6 in the morning, I'll call Brian up and say, hey, Brian, you're on today. I just, I just couldn't get it together this week. It'd be awful. And you're saying, well, we're listening to you, and maybe you should have called Brian. I don't know. <laughs> but seriously, how many people just don't show up? My son in, in his ministry, he says he has teachers who just don't show up. They have Sunday school classes, just don't show up. Don't contact anybody. Don't get anybody to, to take their place. They just don't show up. That's appalling. And I used to be able to say, you wouldn't do that at work. But from what I hear, people are doing it at their jobs as well. And what a terrible testimony for the people of God. We need to be responsible because we are in God's eyes. So we need to act responsibly because in God's eyes, we are responsible to do the work that he's called us to do. Why does the church suffer so much at times? I think sometimes we think this, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. Are you really so naive to believe that? Have you looked at the church? Have you not noticed that when we don't do the work that God has called us to do, that the body suffers for that? It does. And what are we doing? We just like to think, well, someone else will do it. And we try to pacify ourselves and think it doesn't matter what we do. But it matters. It matters for God's reputation, for God's glory, and for the help of the body of Christ. We need to be responsible, and we need to do the work, and that brings me to the next word, devotedly, not just responsibly, but devotedly, that we commit ourselves and continue to keep our commitments. That's what they did. They did, we see in chapter 4 and chapter 6, that they worked day and night for 52 days until the wall was done. When are we done with the work that God has called us to do? When the night comes and the Lord takes us home. And until that point, we have something to do here among the people of God for his glory. Devotedly, cooperatively, again, they work together. How many churches are stunted in the work that God has called them to do because people can't get along with each other? What a terrible testimony to the world and to our Savior that we would not cooperate and work together. How many times do we get bent out of shape over certain things that we just think it's got to be this way and we don't realize that when we have this unyielding spirit that it, it, it actually quenches the spirit and breaks down the work that God is doing among his people. To have a cooperative spirit to work with this. I remember as a kid, I, I will go back to my Southern Baptist Convention commercial because I had a friend of mine said, oh, we would never do that. We give missions to our own people. We don't cooperate together. And it just so happened, I knew a young, uh, a young lady who, as I was pastoring um, that church where I was the, the church planter and doing some teaching, she was at the school and she was a missionary kid. And she came up to me and she said, you're Southern Baptist, aren't you? I said, yeah. I was the only, there were only two in the whole district, the largest Christian school in America, but only two Southern Baptists, because at that time, um, our president said he was Southern Baptist, and um, they just didn't like, they didn't trust Southern Baptists. And I couldn't quite, you know, go against them on that completely. Also, if they'd looked at our seminaries in that day, it, it, it was questionable. But she said, you're Southern Baptist? I said, I am. She said, when we were in, they were in North Africa, she said, I was always jealous of Southern Baptist missionaries. I said, oh, why is that? Because first of all, they don't have to beg for money when they come home. And secondly, they had food and they had stuff because people were working together to give to take care of them. And so cooperation, it's not that it's wrong for a church to have its own missionaries. I'm not saying anything negative about that. But I'm saying don't say something negative about the people of God cooperating, working together to do the work that God has called us to do. Because that's what we're called to in the body of Christ, and I see that also among churches with like mind and faith. Another word is proximity. 
They work next to each other. They work next to each other. He gives a description of them working together, but working next to each other. I just heard a guy yesterday said he drives an hour to go to church. The reason the man told me about his friend who drives an hour to go to church because this man can't get along with anybody in the church. And so if he drives an hour, he, he, he doesn't have any responsibility to the church. He goes, sits in, and leaves, and has no involvement in the church, no accountability in the church, no working cooperatively, no working in proximity to the work that God has called them to do. And we are answerable to one another and we need to be working together, shoulder by shoulder. And then simultaneously, they were working at the same time, all working together at the same time. And finally, comprehensively. You'll notice that this very detailed text is very detailed. It's because they worked comprehensively to get the work done. And there was, to turn a phrase, no stone unturned. They did the work. Well, again, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his, accomplish his work. What about you? Is that your food? To do the will of him who sent us? Because what did Jesus say also? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Is that our food? Is that your food? Let me finish with some questions to think about, and we'll be done. What are you doing to serve Christ within the community of faith? What are you doing to serve Christ within this community of faith? And that calls upon, by the way, the leadership to give people the opportunities to be involved in the work that God has called the church to do. But what are you doing? What sacrifices are you willing to make in order to serve the Lord? What sacrifices are you willing to make? How committed are you to working together with other believers in fulfilling the mission of the church? To work with others. Do people bug you? You might be like Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown said, I love humanity, it's just people I can't stand. Well, we can't be like that in the, the body of Christ. We work together because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family, and we work together. Is your life marked by dogged devotion to complete the work that God has called you to do with excellence? To give him the best. It's not a competition. I don't mean better than others. What I mean is to give him the best that you can give. To honor him with that kind of devotion. Then finally, how important is it to you to receive credit or recognition for what you do in Christ's service? How willing are you to gladly serve in anonymity our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That's what we're called to. That's what we are to be as the people of God. And we read about these people in this very long, tedious chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 3. It's here to show us what happens when the people of God do the work of God for the glory of God. And that's what we're all called to do as together we build. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your people And I'm grateful, as Dr. Wright wrote, that you don't have a mission for your church, but you have a church for your mission. So I pray that we would be faithful to that calling upon our lives to carry out the mission that you have given us. 
to carry out the great commission of your gospel and of discipling, to be that light that you called us to be in this very dark world, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. And we know that Jesus said that if he would be lifted up, that many would come to saving faith in him. Those that look to him would be saved. Our Father, our Father we pray that you would help us. God, I pray that your spirit would convict us and that you would put in us a spirit and desire to zealously, devotedly serve you as you've called us to serve you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.